0: Support for this podcast comes from JCPenney. This holiday, our in-person gatherings may be a bit more intimate, and our virtual ones bigger than ever. But no matter how traditions change, what's most important is celebrating special moments with the people who matter most. JCPenney has all the best gifts all in one place, making it easy to send your warmest season's greetings to loved ones near and far. Looking for the perfect gifts for everyone on your list? We'll be back soon with some of our top gift picks. Joy, comfort, peace. JC Penny.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Thanks for spreading the word about stand-up science. We had a successful test run of eight shows. We had fantastic results, some unexpected results, some cities that did stronger and weaker than others, and uh, eight's still a small sample size, but it was enough to know that the show is going to be a real hit, and we're taking it all around the country next year. Right now, I'm planning on... We're reassessing things a little bit rather than starting the quarterly shows right away. Uh, some of the things we need to get more data, basically. So we're going to spread out and do more shows all around the country and still try to get back to start a regular, maybe tri show in the cities. As promised, if it doesn't happen in 2019 to make uh, something a quarterly show in those. It will happen in 2020. We're kind of zeroing in on the markets, letting the markets decide where the show is going to be the most popular. And uh, again, if, if you're unfamiliar, you're just tuning in. Stand-up science is, is me hosting a, li- a live one-of-a-kind experience. It's it, You can't stream it anywhere. Nothing like that. You have to go out. You have to see it live. Live entertainment. Remember it? we're bringing it back Uh, it's going to be me hosting i'm going to introduce an academic to do a 15 minute talk then a local comic to do their most cerebral material and then another academic to do a 15 minute talk and then uh we that's the first half of the show the second half of the show is a panel discussion with me the two academics and the other comic led by you the audience guided by your questions q and a with the audience so everyone gets to be involved it's been a really special experience everyone that's shown up has absolutely loved it so far i got i got yelled at by one lady yeah i got yelled at because she didn't there wasn't enough time we stopped taking questions and she really wanted to ask a question <laughs> but those uh other academics they stay after the show you get to meet everybody uh it's just a fantastic live experience so how Is it going to come to your town? Easy. We're picking the cities based on a number of different criteria, one of them being where do I have the most listeners, where do I have the most fans. To measure that, we are looking at my email list, which you can go to shanemoss.com and join the email list for the show, and that's how you'll vote. Your vote will decide where we try the show next. Right now I'm lining up a bunch of shows on the East Coast, and then we'll be, uh, we're slowly moving to the middle and uh, popping through California as well in, in January. So we're popping around a few different areas, but we're going to cover the whole nation in January through March. I'm going to do as many of these shows as I can possibly handle and put together, which is going to be, we're, we're aiming for three a week, which is going to be uh, keep me insanely busy, but I'm building a team of people to help me, and it's just really exciting. So make sure and join the email list, shanemoss.com, and enjoy today's terrific episode. hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i'm talking with professor of mechanical engineering and associate director of the virtual reality Applications center i know you guys are very excited to hear this i'm in at the iowa state university talking with elliot weiner today elliot thank you for joining me thank
2: you for having me i really appreciate it
1: thank you for your overwhelming tour of the future my goodness you had a good time yes this this is this is i feel like a kid in a candy store well we sort of fire hose you a little bit there for about 20 minutes it really was it's funny you say that i was just thinking about how sometimes this information seems very overwhelming Mm -hmm. and uh it feels like a little bit of a of a fire hose ever watch the movie uhf by chance? Yes. Back yes. in the day? Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, well, I guess that is uh, the fire hosing. Um, I was thinking of that just as we came in here. What an odd uh, <laughs> coincidence. So I, you were asking me how I got into this. I want to ask you how you got into your work. I, early on, my very first interest in science, because I never paid attention in school, trying my hardest to catch up in my adult life, um, but my first interest was technology. And uh well, I, I, first comedy, I wanted to be a comedian and then I got really interested in technology and then I was kind of like a transhumanist for a while. I wanted to be a robot and and uh, and got very into uploading my consciousness into a computer and that sort of thing. And uh, sometimes I think careful what you wish for because I think we're right around the corner on uh, on some of, of these things um, uh, and and the listeners are going to I think my listeners are going to be... Absolutely blown away, even though they didn't get the visual tour that I did, uh, just even hearing about what you're doing. This is going to be such an exciting conversation. Let's set the, let's set the foundation a little bit of how, how you got to be here. Uh, you said you've, you've been here for 15 years, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. So um, what, what's funny is my undergraduate from uh, uh, the Ohio State University, I always got to put the V in front of it. And uh, believe me, I was an athlete there and we got talked to by marketing about that anyways. But uh, no, I was an aerospace engineer. Um, I wanted to work on the shuttle. I'm a little bit older. That was a big thing. Um, lots of twists and turns, but turned out that was not what I wound up doing. Uh, did a master's and PhD. And then uh, my PhD advisor said, hey, I want you to get into virtual reality. And I was like, okay. I had no idea what it was. I was a programmer, but I didn't know what virtual reality was and how it worked or anything like that. But your advisor tells you to do something, so you do it. And uh, got a lot of you know, background on it, a lot of reading on it, and how to do it, and, I, and got into it. And I realized what an incredibly powerful technology it is. And what's kind of funny is if you start working in this community, you very quickly learn this is university, Iowa State, in the middle of Ames, Iowa, in the middle of Iowa, that is one of the world leaders. Uh, the center here is just unparalleled in what it does in virtual reality, and now all the other additional quote realities, augmented reality, mixed reality, you name it. And so, I was lucky enough to uh, to get a job here and uh, and do it. So a lot of twists and turns in how I
1: got here, but uh, but I'm really glad that I'm here. So uh, let's. <laughs> I don't even know where to start because as as you said, I did. I got firehosed. I got the royal treatment. I we really. Are. I felt like. I I was walking through, and I was trying to pay attention as much as I could, and at the same time, there's something in my head that I was like, wow, I've really created such an interesting life for myself. I can't believe I get to do these uh, awesome things. Um, and so, anyway, I'm so grateful for the tour, but I got to see a... Tell me what the, the, the cyclone is. Uh, oh, the that C6. Yeah, I was yeah. about to try to explain it, and yeah. I was like, no. Nah. <laughs> well, before I do that, I got to give you kudos because I, we, do, we do a lot of
2: demos and tours here, as you might imagine. And uh, so we kind of can read people's faces pretty good. You get some people that just – they know it right away. Like they're experts in this field, and they, they can dive right into a deep question. Other people who are just – it's way over their head, and they're just being polite, and they're nodding and smiling – I could see the gears were going in your head. You were, you were trying to make, like, take it all in and process it. So that was impressive because a lot of people don't, don't try and do that. And you were asking some questions that you understood what was going on. Um, so yeah, so our, our, we have a lot of systems here, a lot of uh, software and hardware, a lot of equipment, some commodity, the kind of stuff that anybody can buy, some things very specialized, very expensive. So our, our flagship system, if you will, is called the C6. And it's what we refer to as a cave system, which is cave automatic virtual environment. Essentially, we put screens all around you. In in our cave, it's six walls, so the floor and the ceiling and the four walls. And you go into it, we shut the door behind you, and then we're projecting images onto those screens. We put special shutter glasses on you so that when we project an image for the left eye on a screen, we block your right eye out and vice versa. And we do that very, very quickly. So we feed each eye 30 frames or 30 images per second, which is not quite we see in real life, but it's pretty fast. Your brain gets two different images, as it does in real life, and it starts perceiving depth. So when you were in there, you kind of lost the walls a little bit. You saw images floating out in real space as you would.
1: That's why my new phone has these two little cameras. That's exactly on, why.
2: On, That's right? exactly why, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as we can triangulate distance and all the things you can do with that. So visually, we give you virtual reality. Um, one of the big buzz terms right now is augmented reality. So you're seeing it all over the place from Microsoft HoloLens to the Magic Leap device, your, your phone, Apple iOS came out with AR kit. Um, Google has theirs and you can also use that technology to do calculation of distance, um, in terms of where's a floor, where's a wall, and then I can put virtual content on it. So let's say you're in an open room, your apartment, you're moving to a new place, you want to see what your furniture will look like before you ever get there. Walk around and scan it with your phone. There's plenty of apps to do this now. And you can drop in virtual and see it sitting on the floor and move it around and figure out how, you, how you're how you going to do that. Um, engineers are trying to figure out how to do it for companies, for warfighter training, for medical imaging. So the
1: applications really are almost endless at this point. Mm. So even my mom's going to be into virtual reality because she can redecorate. She's always moving furniture. She, she
2: might. Segment. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my mom's about to turn 80. Um, she uses her smartphone might be a bit of a challenge. Sometimes you get that little age, you know, discrepancy where technology, but but we are seeing a lot of the older generation use this stuff. In fact, um, a lot of the motion technologies and AR technology are being used for re- rehabilitation, um, whether it might be for muscular degenerative diseases, brain diseases. Um, I mean, there's, I, I don't work in that area. I'll be really clear, but I've seen a lot of applications. So it really, for me, it's such an exciting time because we're really at the knee of the curve in a technology um, generation. You know, People look at Moore's Law, how computers would, you know, process speeds would double every 18 months, roughly. What you find out is actually it's not doubling, it's actually an exponential curve. And we are literally at the knee of that curve right now. And what that means is, you know, we were moving along almost flat along your x-axis, if you will, but now we're going to start bending up and we're going to see dramatic advances. And we don't realize as customers how our preferences are changing. So let me, let me give you one. Um, in your lifetime, Wi-Fi came out. Right. Mm-hmm. Having Wi-Fi in public areas. 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't common. Right. Now we're all mad if it's not everywhere and it's not free and it's not fast. Mm-hmm. And that happened really fast. So you're seeing just this really exponential change in product development and, and, and advances in almost every field. And um, But as consumers, sometimes we're just expecting better, faster, cheaper all the time. you got to understand there's a lot of complex stuff under the hood that has to happen for that to occur.
1: Hmm. I mean, it is. I, as I said, I just got this phone a couple weeks. It is. It's pretty amazing what we take for granted. Because I was, I was kind of excited about my new phone for roughly twenty minutes. Uh, I haven't had a new phone in three years. And I was like, okay, I fixed some bugs. Probably that's Whatever. really was old. Yeah, come on, there. three years. Come I on. know, I was an old man. Um, but it, I do some of this stuff. You must run into people. That are just like, no, thank you. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to, there, there must be, there must be some natural aversions, uh, to some of this stuff. And then I, I think early on, there's this big spike and it's very exciting. And then people start to kind of manage their behavior after a while too and, and moderate how much they use, say, a television or a screen. I took Twitter off my phone recently because I couldn't modulate that well, but, Uh, It seems like we probably run into this with all technologies.
2: Um. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, here at the center and what we study, we not only develop the technology, but we also study the interaction humans have with it. Um, What's the best way to build the interfaces and and the aversion to technology? that's That's a huge issue. In fact, right now, there's a project that we're just starting to talk about putting together which is looking at um, aversion to drones. So drones are, we're seeing, right? Any newspaper, any online news source you go to, you're probably going to find a story about a drone Mm -hmm. being used for something or going in my neighborhood. I have two or three drones a week that I hear flying by. Right? So they're everywhere. We've heard about things that, you know, FedEx might be using, UPS might be using them to deliver packages. You might be using to inspect oil pipelines, to inspect airplanes. I mean, all kinds of different things. Well, are we all ready for that? Are we all ready for this vision of the future where, you know, I'm walking through a city and I look up and I just see all these little drones flying everywhere? Um, you know, there's a lot of policy decisions that have to get made there. The politicians have to get involved. Public opinion has to be involved. So w- what's our aversion to that? Right. And a lot of it comes down to privacy. It comes down to, do I trust technology? Um, is it going to crash into my house or is it going to land on my front stoop and drop off that package? I mean, so, so there's a lot. So as the, as the technology development occurs, we have to look at the adoption and what are people ready for. Hmm. Another classic example of that actually is the airplane. So we're all used to that pretty traditional shape of an airplane, right? you got kind of that big cylinder pill in the middle. You've got the wings sticking out of the side. If you look back at how aircraft, you know, 1940 and 50, they looked pretty much like that. You're a little more dynamic, a little more sleeker nowadays, but it's not tremendously different. Aerodynamically, and this is kind of going back to my undergrad days, um, what's called a blended wing body is a much more efficient way for an aircraft. And that's where you don't really have that difference between the fuselage, that sort of tubular structure, and the wings coming out of it. You really have just one kind of big wing almost is what it Mm -hmm. looks like. They had developed, you know, some of the aircraft companies developed some concepts of those, and they showed them to people. And this was, it's an old story in the aerospace industry many years ago. And people were like, I'm not going to get on that thing because it doesn't look like a plane to me. They have no idea of the engineering. They have no idea why. It, but to them, it just looks strange. And so they said, look, if, if, if people aren't going to fly in it, airlines aren't going to buy it. And airlines are going to buy it. We're not going to build it. And that's, that's
1: fascinating. Yeah, I mean,
2: and you see things like that. So we're getting more in the psychology of it every, every right. year. I, I work with psychologists routinely and people who run human subjects trials to figure out to make sure the technology we developed is actually going to be adopted. Because you can have the best technology under the hood
1: in history if no one uses it then it's worthless huh yeah i mean i i do well not only but because you're using drones in ways people think of drones now and this is like uh drones are for bombing uh, or or playing with but you're using uh i i actually had a couple drones and uh i my last i had a pretty fast one and i um I tried. I tried to fly it under really uh, a goalpost really quickly. How did that go and, for uh, you? I watched it explode in front of my eyes, which is uh, it was like a real. It was like a good metaphor for like my <laughs> my life spending. Way too much money on a bunch of silly stuff I don't necessarily need, and then watching it blow up right in front of my face. Um, but your use, you you have these incredible practical applications that I would have never even thought of. You're talking about planes and inspecting planes and and shuttles, and uh, can you explain that? Yeah. Now I'm really clear. That's not my work. So oh, I want okay. there's other professors that work at Iowa State, but some that work
2: in the center here. Um. So, yeah, some of the work that, that's being looked at by those professors is, you know, drone technology um, allows you to get to locations, let's just say, and get video in different ways. It can be regular video, infrared video. You can even do ultrasonic sensors that humans have a tough time getting to. So, for example, um, you have to inspect an aircraft. If I had to inspect, a, let's say, a 747, a really big aircraft, I'm going to have to move it into a hangar where I have catwalks and skyways that people can get to so I can get an inspect Because it has to go through normal inspections and maintenance, things like that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these planes. They're fine. They're great. It's an amazing design. Where if I had a drone, I could literally fly the drone all around the aircraft, have it take all these different pictures and all these different modalities, as we call it, and then, ins- and then do image processing on those and see if I – and we could eliminate huge swaths of it and say everything's fine. And then target, maybe there's a couple areas that we do have to get someone into. But we can be much more efficient how we do the inspection right now. Um, we can target the areas that need to be looked at. We don't spend time on areas that don't need to be looked at. Get them out in a service quicker. So I'm not going to say reduce the cost of an airline ticket. That's probably not going to happen. But uh, but you know, but it, it can make things more efficient for everybody
1: and probably safer. I mean, this sounds a little better than uh, the human eye, which is uh, has its issues. No yeah. no no blind spot necessarily in a in a drone and uh, a drones a drones not getting bored of this inspection job and right. irritated by how that it hasn't gotten a raise in a while and uh, so thinking about what and thinking about what it's going to have for dinner that night or netflix binge or or whatever drones just doing exactly what it's supposed to do and you, you you know what you're, you're you don't know how right you actually are <laughs> on and things like, you know
2: we, we we joke about that but in all honesty that that's that's a real problem um right. i mean when people do it you you're into those things and and mm-hmm. we we have other applications we work on where um, when I, if I'm running a study and I want to see how people react with augmented reality in some way, I have to pay attention. If someone comes in and it's 1 o'clock and they skip lunch and they're in a bad mood, it's definitely going to affect how they interact with the tasks that I've given them and how they assess themselves. We, you know, they're gonna, they're, we're going to have some qualitative metrics, some quantitative metrics, we're measuring them. They're also going to, you know, how do they feel about technology. So we kind of take all that data and put it together over a lot of participants and try and figure out if something's working or not. But you absolutely can see trends in that. So, you know, a lot of times if they've had lunch, you sort of get that little food coma time after lunch, where they're, you're a little bit more content and maybe not as sharp. Right. Um, later in the afternoon, people get a little tired. So, absolutely, those things are very important. I'll tell you, as me as a researcher, that's where I've had a, had a bit of a renaissance for myself. Um, when I started out, you know, I was coding and building applications, and whether it be in virtual reality or for design of products or whatever the case may be. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm well-educated. I, I know what people want. And I really didn't. But I, I, was, I was young and naive and, and pretty stupid, actually. And then I, as I came to Iowa State and started working in this, this center that was very multidisciplinary with people from all across departments, working with, you know, human factors people and psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, kinesiologists even um, that understood how, you know, the human body, how it works, how the mind works a little bit, and understanding that I really didn't know. How people interacted with stuff mm-hmm. and you really you have to bring that stuff together um I mean, I mean if you don't even if I'm building a software interface your your new phone your laptop where do the windows come up the colors how does things move that dramatically affects how we interact and how we like to interact mm-hmm. and, and ideally I want you efficient I want you happy as a user if you're not it's going to affect your overall work like you're saying and so those are really important factors I know a little bit about them now because I've worked with a lot of people but thank god we have the experts that we do yeah
1: yeah, I mean, that's, uh, economists learned this lesson and had to start, uh, you know, learning about behavioral, uh, economics. So there's this economy, but then when humans interact with this economy, some, someone very knowledgeable might expect like, well, this is what the truth is. And so, so people are, uh, will be interested in this true representation of reality. And that's why they'll buy a product or make economic decisions. But there's all of these other factors and human, uh, influences that need to be considered. Um, and, and yeah, that I, I can see that happening with, uh, uh, w- with technology and everything else. I, as you talk about the, uh, importance of interdisciplinary, I was just kind of thinking about, what i've been doing popping around getting uh talking with uh all these experts on all these different fields and and uh and then going around and um swapping little bits of information and and uh i was thinking about kind of how ideas are formed in our minds and how they get pollinated in various ways and kind of s- with these these uh ideas form these combinations and and spring into new ideas and and how how messaging system works and uh, like I, I learned a lot about hormones in the brain I spent so much time trying to understand the inner workings of the brain which is a lot of like we're just kind of making metaphors for what we sort of think is happening on these different levels of perception and representations um, but you are actually going into the brain virtually to study it right you're uh yes, you're you're yes, right. you're you're helping uh doctors, neuroscientists and and other people anyone interested in having a peek in there and and actually using virtual reality to understand the reality of our own brains yeah yeah so so i i got into medical imaging research um
2: a number of years ago actually I'm older than I'd like to admit, but uh, it was about the year 2000. Um, I was at my old at my first university and um, I was doing a lot of work with high performance computing at the time, parallel processing things like that and I there was a center on campus that did this work and I they had a sort of an all hands meeting day so we went for a day and just to kind of present different work people were doing and I sat next to someone who worked at uh, they have a, a stroke research center, so stroke of the brain at this university and I sat next to a gentleman who I had never met before and he saw my name and he said, oh, he said, you know, my name's Ken, I'd like to meet you He because I've, I've been trying to, you know, I've heard about you and I'm like, you have? And he's like, yeah. And at that time, if you remember the Matrix movie, this was about. Had just come out. It was about ninety nine, two thousand, and there was that scene. If if you're an old movie buff like I am, I know the young kids are like, "What's the Matrix?" Like to me, the Matrix is not Do that the old. the young movie. kids not know. know the
1: Matrix they anymore. Don't. It's old. Oh my
2: it's really, I know we're old. We believe <laughs> it, I'm much older than you. But um, that scene when Trinity jumps up and the pa- and the camera spins around her, uh-huh. and you see that. So that technology was actually pretty well known for a long time. Is that if if I take multiple views of a scene from multiple cameras. I can stitch them together and make a 3D scene out of it. They used a whole bunch of cameras in a a 360 configuration. But you can rebuild 3D with as little as two images. Um, You can't get full 360 around an object, but I can get almost 180 depending on the angle that the the images are coming from. So he was actually studying um, angiograms. So an angiogram is when if you have potentially an aneurysm in your brain, and they will fish a catheter up your thigh, all the way up through your chest, right up into your head, and they'll you die up there, and they'll try and get images of that to see, you know, do you have a possible blood clot forming? Because obviously, that can be really bad if it's in your brain. And so, he had these angiograms, which are of a vessel, really poor image quality, though. I mean, we're talking grayscale, fuzzy, but he had from two different angles. And he said, could you reconstruct a 3D on that vessel? That That's a very tiny blood vessel in the brain. And I said, yeah, we can do that. So... He gave us some images. We did it. and We sent it to him, and then we started talking about future projects. And he said, "Well, he goes, I think I need to get you into an OR, an operating room. So look at me, look at me using the vernacular like I'm a, like I'm a doctor. But uh, into the OR and to see what this stuff is. And I said, okay. So I went and watched, and I watched an angiogram being done. And frankly, I was just at that point. I'm like anybody else though. Medicine is kind of like this magic thing. Doctors are incredible. I mean, I'm a doctor, but I'm not a medical doctor." And to see what they do, how they save lives, whether it be a surgeon or a general practitioner, has always been pretty amazing to me. And I got a real insight into the technology they were using. Now, this is 2000, so it's not as 2001. It's not quite like what it is today. But we still have pretty advanced stuff we were doing in the lab. I mean, I had been doing a virtual reality and everything. And they're using these images. It, it, the best way I can describe it is, like, take a piece of angel hair pasta and fold it up on a table. Like, just let it drop into a pile. Look at it from about a, a two or three feet away. Take a picture, put it in grayscale, make it really, really fuzzy, and then try and determine where each of those bends are. Because if one of the bends is on top of it in a certain way, you're in real trouble. But if it's, if it's underneath it, you're fine. And you, you, and, and I'm looking at this going, Oh, and I'm just shocked. Like we're using better technology, visual technology to build copiers and cell phones and cars and what we're doing on someone's brain. All right. But the doctors are so well trained that that, imaging that they had was really just a marker for them. They had seen so much of it that that just kind of gives them a little indication. They build a mental model in their head and they're able to generally make the right decision. I mean, we're talking 97% of the time, which is incredibly high rate. But when I saw that, I was like, oh my, we can do so much better. And so that's what kind of led me off on this journey to say, what was there? You know, What's the kind of imaging? And you get into things like uh, CT scans, which are a bunch of X rays. You ever had your knee CT'd or something like that. Your knee surgery or back surgery You might have had that done. Or an X- if you had an X ray done, a CT is just mm-hmm. a whole bunch of X rays very quickly. Uh, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. I'm going to put you in this big tube. I'm going to bombard your body with a magnetic field, and I'm going to see the responses of your organs relative to uh, something, usually air or water. And that's how we get those pictures. And, and we've all seen those 2D pictures on hospital light boards, whether in movies. You've seen one because you've had it done. You can get a CD with your scan if you've had a CT of your knee or something like that. But they're really just cross-sectional slices, and the image quality is very poor. Um, But you start taking all the techniques that people like me have been doing for years, whether in gaming technology or engineering technology, how we can render those in three dimensions. We can put them in stereo. We can color them. We can do all kinds of various things to them, and we can unlock the potential this imaging has for the doctors so they can make much better decisions. Um, and so that's what we've done here, and and that's what you saw a little bit of. And we were touring around. We've had surgeons come up and plan operations in our facilities before, um, because they might have had a very intricate tumor that was wrapped around the spinal column in a certain way, and they needed to they wanted to remove that tumor, and they need to know where the healthy tissue is, obviously, and where the tumor tissue is, and they want to plan it out very precisely. Um, we've had our technology used at uh, one of the major transplant centers in the U.S. for liver transplants. And when I mean. I never studied that, but it was being used there. And I I was even surprised by that. You know, a major organ transplant like the liver, you can't live without it. And for a while, our technology, which had transitioned out to a company, was being used as one of the primary visualization tools for their surgeons before they would go do this kind of procedure. So we were able to take a lot of these engineering uh, procedures and and methods that we had developed with computer graphics and virtual reality, apply them to the medical community, and and hopefully we're starting to see this now um, be unlocked, that they're using three-dimensional modern mobile the kind of stuff that we're all used to using every day for mundane tasks use them for medicine because it really you know they can do much better job with their own training diagnosis and treatment and then that that's you know that's a that's a big deal for all of us
1: Hmm. wow
2: Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Lenovo. At CDW, we get putting productivity within reach of remote employees.
1: That's why I'm WFC, working from couch and moving everything within arm's length, like the microwave lunchtime. You should talk to the experts at CDW.
2: They can orchestrate a more efficient workspace solution using light, powerful devices from Lenovo to keep your teams productive from anywhere, couch included.
1: Yeah, but do they have grabber claws?
2: Whoops. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Learn more at cdw.com slash Lenovo client.
1: I had so many questions, and then as soon and now I'm like, what was one of the questions that I had? Oh, here's what it was. So I got, I had to stop playing video games, um, uh, some time ago. I I have impulse control issues, and I I'm uh, (laughs) I get addicted to things very easy. Um, but I was reading. There's some game about kind of exploring the universe, and they used. Actual kind of data from astronomy to construct this universe that then you can kind of fly this, um, uh, wh- wh- you know, whatever, your, your observer or whatever around this universe and see these different um uh, stars and things like that, and and i guess astronomers have actually learned things about how the unit once they had the programming built that represents our model of the universe and uh, as far as what we know about it and then you put it in the computer and the computer has to make some adjustments to um uh, it, it, you're talking about suspending disbelief earlier. Well, computers don't suspend disbelief so much. They, they have to go in and make a few corrections here and there. And, uh, and so like these astrophysicists and stuff all of a sudden started learning a little bit about interactions, um, uh, with planets and stars and whatever, uh, from these computer models. And I imagine this is going to happen in our medical fields as well, right? It already is. Yeah. I mean, and what you're describing is, is
2: definitely um, one of the applications, kind of broad applications of, that we see of virtual reality is enabling people to experience something that either maybe they can't because of cost, time, distance, or it's not even a, around anymore. Um, so I, I'm familiar with that project that you were I mean, I've read about it. You know, I, not that it was run here, but we, we've had ones here that um, some of our professors in design and arch- architecture have done. To re-enable temples, re-enable scenes from, from history that, you know, um, famous places hmm. that have been destroyed. But you can recreate them and you can go experience them in virtual reality. Um, they talk about virtual vacations, things like that. We're going to see if that's what we're going to take off. I think we got to get to more of the senses because right now we're, we're primarily visual, a little bit of auditory. But we don't have haptics, which is a sense of touch. We don't have smell. We don't have taste. You kind of really need – What's haptics? So haptics is a sense of touch. Uh, mm-hmm. So how do, I, how do I replicate that in a virtual environment? That's pretty hard to do right now. There really isn't a, a good technology for that. Visual, really good. We can do photorealistic stuff. And I, I can render things – Maybe not real time all the time, but I can definitely put images up. I could pull something up right now and show you, and you wouldn't be able to tell me if it was real or it was a photo, if it was a photograph or it was a computer image. You think it was a photograph? So we're working on on things like that. But but there virtual is virtual
1: smells. Is that the is that the there, the gold standard? They actually will know we've done it. <laughs> there are companies out there. I'm not joking that create
2: that you can buy products that that generate smell for virtual environment. Um,
1: like a 3D printer, but for smell?
2: No. Well, it, it's more of like a, I, I mean, it's an odor creator, if you will. <laughs> um, so, so if you want to go study, so we, we here's, here's a project. I'll give a plug to a colleague of mine, which sounds kind of, I'm, give, it, give, it, give it a second here uh-huh. as I describe it. But he was doing a study. Um, people own restaurants want to understand a better dining experience. So if I'm going to create this experience and I want to study in a simulated environment, I had, I'd better have taste and smell. Because obviously when you're eating, that's you know, two of the primary things. Visual a little bit, right? So we built a simulated environment, and we had, but we had to have real food. So we put them with a head-mounted display, so an HMD as we call it. But then they came into this room, and there was a hot plate of food that was put in front of them. They couldn't now they, they saw something different in the virtual environment, but they could feel the warmth. They could touch it. They could smell it. Um, so yeah, depending on And that really increased the overall uh, effectiveness of the study. So if I put you in a virtual environment and tell you to eat virtual food and there's no smell and there's no taste and there's no heat, you know it's not real. Mm -hmm. But when I'm in this virtual environment, all of a sudden I feel the heat and I put something in my mouth and I can chew it and I can smell it. I'm like, oh my God, and, you know, I'm eating virtual food, if you will. Um, so
1: eventually we could eat something that is in reality good for us, but is virtually like a Big Mac or something like maybe. that. Maybe. <laughs> hey, I would
2: love that because I love to eat. That would certainly be great. Yeah. Yeah. No, but there, but there's, there's a lot going back to the medicine, which you're asking the, the original question. Like, I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. Uh, as an engineer, I yeah, I do all the time, right? Yeah, great. I'm, I'm sort of known. I mean, my group and what I do, we're kind of the jack of all trades. So we'll do projects, you know, from, Vehicle design, aircraft, farming equipment, military training, medical imaging—I mean, you name it. We're, we're we're sort of like the Swiss Army knife, if you will. Of uh, and mechanical engineers, a lot of times that's what we are. You know, we, we kind of are that glue that brings everybody else together. We kind of have to be able to talk the talk of a lot of different disciplines and and understand how it can all eventually come together to a good outcome. Hmm. In medical imaging, um, you're already we're already seeing a bit of a, a kind of a revolution in how they're training people. So. Traditionally, let's kind of go to that for a second. If I'm, put, if I, if I'm in a medical school, uh, you're going to take gross anatomy your first year, your first year, year and a half, first two semesters for sure. You, you just got to get familiar with the human body, every organ in it, how things work before we can start to talk about when or, when are there problems, how do you diagnose it, treat if you're going to be a surgeon, how do you actually fix things. So typically a medical school is going to have a cadaver lab, and they're only going to have about, uh, depending on the size of medical school, most of them are going to have six to eight to ten cadavers. Um, statistically, most of them are going to be older. They're going to be smaller and a lot of them are going to be women. Um, and that's who tends to live the longest. So if I need to study different physiology as a, as a, tra- a doctor in training, I need to see, you know, the six foot five, 300 pound guy, as well as the five foot two, 80 year old woman and everything mm. in between. So it can be kind of tough to, to, you know, to, to, you know, find that. So I can go to my cadaver that I'm working on that semester or that year. I can go to the other ones in the room, but I don't get that variation that I need. However, we have continual scans being done of healthy people or healthy and sick people, I should say, every day. The amount of CT scans and MRI scans being done. There's some statistic that I saw. I can't verify this, but I saw that something by like 2035, 80% of all images on the planet are going to be medical images. I mean, that's how, so we have lots of movies come out, a lot of YouTube videos, things like that. The amount of medical data being produced digitally is just far outweighing anything at this point. There's so much of it. So if we could have a technology in that um, cadaver lab that let's say I'm studying heart valve abnormalities that day, right? So I have on my table, there's the heart of my cadaver. I'm looking at the valve and then I have my iPad or I have my laptop or whatever I have device. And there I have 50 more real scans from people, but I can interact with them. I can zoom in, I can virtually cut into them and I can see all these different valve abnormalities. My, I'm increasing my knowledge, the breadth of my knowledge as I'm, as I'm, learning it right then and there, right mm. the first time. So we're actually seeing some medical schools that are doing away with their physical cadaver labs, doing it entirely virtually. Because one, it's cheaper. Two, that they can get the um, variety they need, different ages, you know, genders, you know, different sizes of you know, whether it's a heart and the valves and, or whatever kind of variation they need a particular anatomy. Um, and then three, it's a lot more effective, that which which they found. The people that do this are much better trained. And so then they advance farther in their curriculum. And if you think about it, if I can train you faster, and let's say you're, you're in a normal year curriculum, you know, for gross anatomy or you're four years for medical school, whatever it is me, now I've given you more time. So I can either get you out faster from medical school or I can put more in the curriculum and have you better trained when you actually graduate. It's kind of a nice option to have. Um, and then there's sort of number four, which is, well, you know, it's kind of the gross part people don't think about It's kind of expensive to maintain a cadaver lab. You have to buy them and bring them in. You've got to (laughs) store them, if you will, as I've learned. You have to dispose of them in a certain way. So it's a lot of cost for a university to do that. Um, And so if you can eliminate that, it really just helps across the board. I mean, that number four one is something that the medical school, if you're actually working there, that's a big reason for them. Although (laughs) the general public, we don't always want to think about that, but it is a concern. Yeah.
1: Well, that's one less job, though. We are worried about these jobs, oh, right? Great. Was, uh, we're taking jobs away from all the <laughs> all the cadaver stores. Um, I, I I so I'm curious about we build these technologies, um, we build these technologies, and and we have these exceptionally powerful new programs and systems that we use, and and this new amount of information that we're looking at for the first time, and we're and we're sometimes using um, our past intuitions when looking at kind of this entirely new uh, perception. Uh, like you, you mentioned, planes, for example. But I'm I'm sure even the first planes, people were rightly scared to get on the, on those things. But and people are still scared of flying uh, regular old planes. But um, I was hearing about X rays. When x-rays first came in to existence, they had been used to looking at cadavers that were laying uh, flat on a surgeon's uh, table. And and then when x-rays came around, people were able to sit up and you could x-ray them sitting up. And so someone had come in with this bellyache, you'd x-ray them, and you'd look at this past knowledge of where organs are supposed to be, and you'd look and go, Well, these organs aren't where they're supposed to be. They're a little lower because of gravity, because they're sitting up. I know what to do about this. I know why your stomach is, it's dropped. We need to raise your stomach. We need to stitch your organs up so that they'll stop dropping. That's why you're getting a stomach ache. And, and that was like real. Uh, that's a real thing that happened to some unfortunate people, uh, because of this misunderstanding with interacting with a new technology. And that's not, I, I know other examples like that off the top of my head from when we look in the past, um, uh, of, of, uh, uh, science is this beautiful instrument and this wonderful tool but it 's also uh, you need to think about the human interaction scientists are human beings interacting with this machine and uh do do you see have you seen in your fifteen years have you seen any examples like that of of you get into the virtual world, you make some assumptions, and then there 's just a blind spot something that you missed um or or do you do you worry about the way in which people interact with these things um Making false assumptions that that are, uh, you know, uh, uh, creating I don't know er, 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 erroneous assumptions all the time. Yeah, I mean,
2: I mean, for all the cool stuff I talk about, the successes that we've had, you have way more failures. Um, I mean, that's how you learn, and, and as a professor. I can tell you, I, I make the joke. I mean, I've 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 failed more today than probably most people have would consider failing in the last week. I mean, it's just something we do. You know, you, you constantly just hitting your head against the wall and and you know button up against an obstacle and having to figure out a way around it. But absolutely, we we see a lot of that. Um, there's a number of good examples of, of products we had where things like that would happen. We developed simulation. One in particular was a number of years ago. We I did a project. We were actually building a simulation to treat people that from a motor vehicle accident, pretty severe accident. Um, so they had been in these accidents where someone might have been killed. Uh, the car had flipped multiple times, really, really horrific accidents. And these people had, had developed a really severe PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder from mm-hmm. it. Um, a lot of them, it just had affected their whole life. They, they couldn't even go out of the house anymore. You know, just, just trying to get food was a huge issue or something like that. And the treatment, I was working with a psychiatrist, a psychologist at the time who was trying to treat these patients. And, um, the, the treatment regimen they would do, they would do a bunch of office therapy, you know, kind of sessions they would go and meet. And then all of a sudden there was, you know, for a period of time, and then it was okay, put them behind the wheel of a car. So it was a pretty big jump. I mean, no, no matter how much office therapy you might do, as one, as, as the psychologist told me one time, she said, you know, and a lot of these people weren't really great drivers to begin with. And it certainly didn't make them better driver being in an accident like that. So then getting behind the wheel was dangerous for them, dangerous for the therapist can we do something in the middle? Can we put them in a virtual environment and have them drive virtually? And if they get into an accident virtually, they're fine. And that'd be good. So I said, yeah, you know, it'd be perfect. So we had, you know, a big virtual environment. I had a motion base so I could put them in, we built a car cabin around it. They had a steering wheel, they had foot pedals, they were driving. And um, we had all these different uh, characteristics of the project of how the road had to build itself and it couldn't be the same environment every time. So the roads had to be different. And Some had to be in a residential area, some had to be in a city area, things like that. So, we came up with a lot of really cool technology for how to develop that. Well, we developed the original car cabin around a, at that time, a mid sized car. I think it was like a Toyota Camry or something like that. And we put people into it, and we're just, we're not putting the patients yet. We're just trying to tune the environment. Is it working okay, right? And everybody's getting sick. Everybody. I mean, they're not throwing up, but they're all really nauseous after they test, and we can't figure out why. Um, and we're looking over and again the motion base, how we were moving it, the cabin, all the vehicle parameters. We had a full what's called a control model. The weight of the car, how fast the thing would turn, everything matched, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And then finally, we realized, you know what what it came down to is that you have to understand all this. We do is a model, so I can't simulate the real world one hundred percent. So we have to make assumptions, just like you're saying. We make assumptions. Sometimes we make we think to ourselves. Is that a reasonable assumption or what errors is that introduce in the system? What unreliability? How can I damp that out? Is it going to be acceptable to the human, et cetera? And it turned out that just the way we were drawing things and the way we were doing it, even though it was physically correct and physically accurate to that car, it wasn't having the same response to people because they weren't in a real car. They were in about the half, you know, the car with the, the body was about half the length of a real car. The screens they were looking at couldn't draw the real world fast enough as we would experience it. So we had to make some tuning adjustments that deviated from physics, which as an engineer is tough for us to do because that's the world we live in. But we tuned it to the to the um humans to the point where they said, yeah, now it's good. And they weren't getting sick anymore. And we actually wrote a paper on the differences mm-hmm. and, and how and where we ended up. We never would have gotten there if we just did a physics model. But it wound up being very successful. Um, and patients, it actually helped a number of patients that we put through it. But it's one of those things where just like it's exactly what you're saying. We we have to take into account the experts, and sometimes what they're saying is going to help, is going to deviate a model from what we think it should be, or sometimes it's just not going to work. And the best intention, you're just going to fail, and you got to you know go look at a different way. Um, We see that continuously, and you know to kind of if you think about really far out exploration, you know, and and I say that my my mind is kind of going towards space exploration, kind of my old aerospace roots, right? You know, people we hear about a SpaceX rocket exploding or something like that, and people think to themselves, "Geez, why is that happening?" That you know, space travel is the most complicated thing we have we can try to do as a species. I mean, space is the most unforgiving environment. It's out there. It'll kill you instantly.
1: I mean, why are we still putting humans in space by well, the way our all right, robots doing not, better? I don't want to get dark
2: here, but um, <laughs> let's put it this way. If, if, here's something that I will tell you. We kind of have to. Yeah. If we don't, now not you or right. I are going to be, we're going to live our life. Right, our kids right. are going to be okay and our kids' kids will probably be okay. But at some point, right. our sun is going to burn out. And this planet's going to be used up and we had better find a way off it. And so, and we better find a a new place to go and that's going to have to happen. Um, if, if the, if our species is going to survive. And so we need to learn how to not only travel in space, but live in space, uh, probably farm in space, probably move products back and forth. Things that happen in space travel that people don't even think about right now. Mm. So we, you know, the international space station is going around and around. It's been up there for years and there's astronauts living up there every single day. Um, they can't grow food up there. They, you know, they have to be shipped back and forth. You know, they
1: and any waste they produce has to be removed. They can't just fire it out in the space. So they don't tell you about when you're a yeah. kid and they're telling you you can be anything you want to be. You an can. An astronaut and everything. But the reality of those dreams <laughs> yes. is... There's a lot
2: of very practical issues right. that people don't always think about. Right, um, And... As engineers, sometimes you and I were talking about this, I think, beforehand that some of those things that maybe quote unquote aren't as sexy as you know, virtual reality and cool graphics, but are really interesting problems to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I did projects for uh, on big farm equipment for, for a sponsor for a lot of years. And, you know, to people harvesting corn, harvesting soybeans, not that exciting, right? I'm from the East Coast originally. So me, farming was like, what's the big deal? You put some seed in the ground, you put water on it and it grows. Oh, my Lord, was I wrong? The technology that goes into developing the seeds and how you plant them and how you harvest them and when you fertilize and when you don't, and when you give water and when you don't, it's unbelievable. And so my piece of it was working on some of these vehicles. And when I have a vehicle that's almost 900 horsepower, I don't care if it's a—it's ve- not a race car going on a racetrack. It's, it's something harvesting corn. That's a pretty cool vehicle to me. I mean, mm. it's huge. It's one of the biggest vehicles that we make. Um, It's incredibly complex. Not only has to drive, it goes over over very uneven terrain. And it better cut it just right because if our yields aren't good... Your dinner table gets more expensive, and so there yeah. is a direct relationship, so you know so as engineers, we got to think of the really cool stuff, but we do got to think of the real practical stuff sometimes too.
1: yeah well I, this is I think this is a, a part of aging as well. I, I was a, as a sensation seeker and and kind of adrenaline junkie and someone who who was a, a little uh, thick-headed through most of my life and a little hard to get you know, most kids need like the big logos and and you know, that's how they respond to things and I think we get a little more interested in in the nuance. As things uh, move on, but I I do I, as you were talking about that I was like that is it is adorable when people want to start like an organic farm or whatever these days like oh, that's a cute idea I just had I just had uh, you know I got a tour of uh, Full sale Brewery we just had an episode the evolution of 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 beer and um, and you know I I looked at their lab and what they're doing there and the amount of uh, and and the idea of someone trying to bottle their own beer and and have anything close to the level of product that our technology is able to enable it's it's you know that's just a hobby uh at this point and and i i i wonder is this like is this as as we start uh running out of space and time and everything else in this world fills is this what people are going to tap into the virtual uh world to do like uh, right now it's like first person shooters and bang bang boom but maybe they'll be tapping into the virtual world to do gardening or something like that could be i mean uh, yeah we, we see i mean i can tell you i get requests
2: you know whether you know if i'm just talking to people casually or sometimes formally through the university that people want to build a simulation and i mean for uh, i won't say every application but a really wide variety of them um, so we can't always address all those because, you know, we have so much time and, you know, research there is, is there resources to do it and things like that. But but absolutely. I mean, things like that. Um, there was an application. So here, here's one kind of, uh, you know, a little bit more out there. Um, stay with me. I don't know why I, I thought of this, but I just did. So there is nothing
1: that you're going to get further uh, <laughs> uh, out than, than right. I can get. So I'm this
2: promising. is one I didn't do this and it was not done in Iowa State, but it was using virtual reality as a way to mediate pain. And so, um, one of the most painful things that someone can go through is, uh, skin graft. So if you've been really severely burned and they have to get rid of that scar tissue, you know, that, that dead skin and try and peel that away essentially, and then also put new skin on, it's very, very painful. Mm-hmm. Um, topical only, only works so much, pills only work so much. So someone had the idea, and I can't say how they did, but it was a brilliant idea to say, well, You know, certain games, they had looked at and said certain games, you know, increase endorphin release Mm -hmm. um, of the brain and things like that. So could they essentially, I think the premise was, get the brain doing something else while these procedures are being done Mm -hmm. that would severely mitigate the pain. And -hmm. so they built this thing, this environment, and I I think it was called Snow World. You You can Google it. You'll find it. It's a very simplified gaming environment. You're in a frozen kind of frosty the wonderland, you know, frosty the snowman wonderland. You're like shooting these like snowman. You know, it's a game, but and they took some of the sensations. So the fact that if you're in pain, you want to be cold because cold kind of numbs you. So that's why they put you in sort of a winter wonderland. You're playing this game where there's a lot of lights and colors and you know uh, different contrasts coming at you. And they did a study on it, and it was dramatic. I mean, I want to say something like. 50% or more reduction in perceived pain from the patients mm-hmm. and they wore this HMD this head-mounted unit while they played this game while the procedure was being done on them whether it was being removable of scar tissue or, or, or you know or having a skin graft done, um, and it was dramatic so uh, what it could be the the end result of reducing their pain so we are seeing things like so when you mentioned gardening one of the things gardening is is fantastic for if I can get you to for bending um, it's a really great exercise and it keeps your range of motion it's also very therapeutic for the mind. Um, so if we could have you do that virtually, yeah, maybe that's a maybe someone comes up
1: with that. It's a great thing. I I just I um, know we gotta. You, you know what? Uh, because this might lead into a, a few minute long conversation, and we have a limited amount of time. Um, uh, I'll I'll save this question for a second, is to make sure that I don't forget that I have my guests each week plug a charity of this week. Try to encourage a little a uh, little bit of good before uh, that candle uh, burns out that we're spinning around. So uh, perhaps future peoples can <laughs> can go and explore space if we all kind of. Be the glue for one another and and encourage good in the world. That's it's just a theory. It's just a mental model that I have. Hey, I, I don't, go for it. Uh, but uh, but I have my my guess each week. Plug a charity of their choice.
2: Yeah. So I'll I'll actually give two. Um. One a lot from the research I do, and I've also been affected by this. So the American Cancer Society. Um. You know, it's just uh kind of near and dear to my heart to try and do something with that disease. And I had a lot in my family, but then. Some of the original – the first project work I did was actually with uh, pediatrics, uh, kids with cancer, mm-hmm. and removing tumors from them. And that, that really kind of – it hits you when you have that scan on your desktop of a six-month-old with a big tumor in their stomach. And, and, you know, and I had a six-month-old at home at the time. So definitely that's one. And the other one is because I'm an animal lover, the ASPCA. Um, I just uh, yeah, I just lost my dog of 14 years a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Still getting over that. She was a
1: great one. But, uh, but yeah, those are the two that I, w- I would give a plug for Wonderful. Um, all right. Speaking of uh, using virtual reality to maybe create a better world, I was talking yesterday with my friend uh, Topher Sipes, who's who did the artwork for, if you saw the artwork for the Here We Are with the eye and space and everything, and he does digital paint and makes this beautiful uh, work, and he does a lot of uh, virtual reality thing, and he's working with a company I won't remember the name of right now, but it's something like wellness technologies or something like that he he's trying to use this virtual space to encourage kind of movement and exercise in people much like we saw with the uh nintendo we Wii. Wii, he's, yeah. he's he's um i i guess i haven't done it yet i was uh i've, I've done other virtual things that he's, he's done in the past but he's uh trying to um uh, i guess uh there's some program they're creating where it's teaching people how to dance and so people can, uh, you know, they can be by themselves and everyone's, I was always scared to dance and ask girls to dance and everything else. And, and this is now a virtual thing where people can kind of not have to worry about who's watching. You can virtually dance like no one's watching because no one is, um, uh, uh, Assuming that the virtual reality machine isn't kind of somehow capturing that per, uh, no, quite <laughs> um, a big issue. Some... No, you got to think about that. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, uh, what, what are you excited to see in terms of just because what you're doing is, I mean, these are huge projects. These, uh, I mean, very compelling and i mean uh, really shaking things up and creating these uh bigger worlds on the levels of agriculture and and um designing uh new planes and that sort of thing but what about everyone's everyday life as as people are getting more and more interested in this stuff and finding new ways to interact with media what kind of excites you yeah, you know
2: it's it's funny. Um, I have some ideas where it's going to go, but I will say predicting the future is a bit, you know, uh, you know, we got about as much chance of that as you know getting attacked by a bear twice on the same day. Um, you know, the example I give to my students all the time on that is I say, you know, let's say pre- picture for a second we live in 1950. I'm going to give you a question here. It's 1950. What's something we're definitely going to have by the year 2025? Uh-huh. So you're you're a kid in 1950, right? Cars are a relatively new thing. By 2025, we're all going to have what? And I'll ask my students this, and one of them I'll get it within the first two or three answers every time.
1: Um, Let's see if you get it. I would say wireless phones or something, spaceships, flying car. F- Come oh, on, really, uh, flying, flying car? car? 1950? I always get. I, flying I didn't car. know what you're. I was trying to mime to you a little to bit. Do yeah. a little miming. Yeah, Fly, yeah flying so, car. So we're all yeah. going
2: to be flying everywhere, and, That's then, just, and then we're all supposed to have hoverboards, right? right or jetpacks? Yeah. Exactly. There you go. Not, I mean, and we're going to have that. And so, you know, it's, it's 2018. Do we have that? No. And in fact, you can find plenty of commercials that make fun of that kind of thing. So, you know, in that 60 years, 70 years now, it went from a sure thing to a marketing joke. Um, And so there's a little bit of that when we make these predictions at this point, technology is is going so rapid. The person in my position, I look about five, 10 years out. That's about it. But I'll take a shot at your question. I think what's really going to be for everyday person is going to be this blending of the realities. Um, You're hearing term, virtual reality, a lot of people are familiar with it. You might have gone to a virtual reality movie. You've seen that, right? The whole, the whole thing is computer generated. There's augmented reality, which we, we talked about a little bit earlier. So that's when I have the real world and I'm just augmenting it with virtual content, whether I have my virtual furniture or I, you know, I'm in an operating room and I, I'm looking at a real patient, but I can get some augmented data around it. There's mixed reality, which is this kind of fusion of the two. We've done a lot of products in that, and so I, where I think it's going to be very interesting, and I, I can't say specifically what, what I think it's going to do, but this sort of blending, I think we're going to move in and out of reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality on a daily basis, depending on what you're doing. Um, you know, you may walk into your house in the future, and your walls are projection screens, but they're three dimensional. So. You know, call mom and there she is in her kitchen. She turns and she walks over and she points to, oh, maybe you're cooking together. And she's pointing to get this spice and get this and get that. Or, you know, I want to go fix my washing machine. So I call up the virtual repairman and he comes and sits next to me and, and he fixes it with me. Um, so is that virtual reality? Is it augmented reality? You know, this kind of blending that we're not even going to realize. You're starting to see people mm-hmm. thinking about building materials being being part of our technology now. Um, you're starting to see these devices that they build augmented reality look more like regular glasses. It's only be a matter of time until they get the technology down small enough where it's like a regular eyeglass. So I'm looking at you, but I can have all this virtual content or I'm playing a game or whatever I might be doing. And you've seen early adoptions of that that failed, like Google Glass. Everybody knows Google Glass and there were glass holes, right? That's what they were called. And it failed miserably. But someone's got to take that first shot. Um, you know, and the technology curve that we use over time is, and there's initial excitement like you talked about earlier, then you fall into the chasm because it, the hype, it, the reality at that point never, it doesn't match the hype of whatever technology you are talking about. But then if the technology is going to survive, it's going to slowly come back. You know, virtual reality, there was a huge hype in the 90s. Mid to late 90s, we were going to have the holodeck, which is someone who works in it. I hate that term, by the way. Star Trek, I wish they never came up with it because it, that's all I hear about. We're going to have the holodeck, you know. But and in the late 90s, it disappeared because we didn't have the computing power. We didn't have the projector technology. We didn't have what we needed to, to match the hype. But now we do. Mm. Now you're seeing things like the Oculus Rift, the HTC Vive, um, the big RC6 here that I showed you. And we can do things that just blow people away. And as we continue to make it you know, more accessible and make it cheaper, you're going to find applications in everyday life. Um, let me give you one real practical one. Right, Right now, you can go order groceries through an app on your phone, pull up to your Walmart, pull up your grocery store. They'll shop for you. They'll load it in. And you never have to get out of your car. Is it that big a stretch to think maybe I go to the virtual shopping market at my house? So I walk down. I'm looking at the produce. I'm looking at the produce that's in the store real time. Mm-hmm. I'm choosing what I want. Someone's then takes exactly. Not only do I get the five oranges. I get the five oranges I actually picked out. And they're in there. And then a drone slides it to my house, and there you go, there's your groceries. We have all the technology to make all that happen right now. It's not happening yet, but somebody's going to do something like that at some point. You're starting to see smarter supermarkets, right? Amazon bought Whole Foods, and they have supermarkets that are smarter now, right? So when you, you don't even have to swipe your card anymore. You walk in and out, it senses a little sensor in your pocket, an RFID sensor, and you're paid for on your Amazon account. So... You're going to see your everyday tasks become more efficient. You're going to see a blend, I think, of virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, um, enable you to do things that take more time. And uh, is it going to be better? No, that's 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 a question I can't answer. we we're all, we're all, maybe maybe we'll be too distracted at that point. I don't know.
1: How how will we even know once we get sucked into this <laughs> augmented reality? How will we even know if we're like a, after time once it uh, once our our brains adapt to interpreting this new world, how will we even really sense what is reality and what isn't? What's uh, are we all going to have to have little that totems like an in inception or inception whatever in right, yeah. If you're,
2: well, you know that with all the good that it can bring, there's going to be some bad. Um, you know, look at you know the rise of gaming technology, which has been tremendous, not just for video games. We we use it in our applications all the time for training warfighters, for looking at design of vehicles. You'd be surprised all the stuff that we use. Um, but it's uh, but you know, but people get addicted. There's actually addiction to a video game. It's the same thing as addicted to a drug. I mean, you can see it. So there's going to be things like that, yeah. I mean, it's going to affect you know our, our how we interact with people, our social skills. There's going to be some negatives there. Um, we're going to have to learn how to adapt to it. Uh, I I can't tell you what that's going to be. I mean. Mm. I'll work with the experts. I'm not an expert in that field. I'll work with the experts to try and figure it out. Um, but honestly, by that time, I'll be long retired. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be my kid's generation problem. <laughs> I'm going to have to fix that. Yeah.
1: The students, Someone else the students else come yeah. over. Well, thanks for paving the way. And <laughs> thank you for being on the show, Elliot Weiner. Uh, you were absolutely fantastic. And... I, oh man, you're going to be on stand-up science tomorrow. This isn't going to come out for until well after the fact, but uh, but thanks for also taking part in my new little idea as a project that is I, I hope there's enough in the cultures ready for it to <laughs> take off or, or I'm just laying the groundwork for future generations of, of getting information out to the public. We'll see. Um, but I very much appreciate what you do. Thanks for your time and, uh, and thank you listeners for being such Wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week.
3: Hey, everybody, it's Elaine Welteroth, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Built to Last by American Express, where we will dive deep into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Our debut season will focus on Black owned small businesses that need our support now more than ever. In each episode, we feature the story of a Black business trailblazer that has inspired a modern Black-owned business. First up is Pinky Cole of Atlanta's food truck-turned-restaurant, Slutty Vegan. We'll also chat with Hanifa Muemba, the cutting-edge designer behind the Hanifa 3D Digital Fashion Show. Plus, we'll check in with Issa Rae, our modern-day Renaissance woman. We hope that it encourages all of our listeners to support these businesses as well as the Black-owned businesses in your own communities. Tune in for these amazing stories and others on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: It's JCPenney here, back with some great gift ideas for everyone on your list. And they're all available now at your local JCPenney or online. Need gifts for her? Check out our selection of diamond jewelry that's sure to put a sparkle in her eye. Or help her cozy up at home with pajama separates and super soft slippers. For him, try JCPenney's grooming products, like shave sets and trimmers. Or compliment his style with smart flannels and jeans from brands like Arizona, Levi's, and more. Also, stop by Sephora inside JCPenney to find top fragrances for both him and her. For the kids, shop this year's must-have toys and games for all ages. Or bring smiles to all with matching sleepwear sets for the whole family. And for everyone else on your list, share some warmth with a heated blanket, an ultra cozy scarf, or let them decide with a gift card. There are so many ways to share the joy this holiday season and so many ways to shop JCPenney. Visit a store near you, pick up curbside, or go to jcp.com. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney.
1: Next week on the Here We Are podcast, after having to shuffle a few things around, we're back with Sarah Waters in the queue. For next week, talking about stress contagion, how mother's stress interacts with infants and causes higher stress levels in their infant as they're caring for them. Mind-blowing conversation. Stress, it's contagious. Makes sense, doesn't it? Find out more about it next week and sign up for my email list ShaneMoss.com to go there and sign up. Uh, and by the way, I I understand how spam works. I'm not gonna do that to another human being. I'm not a robot. The the computer tests me every day and makes me click boxes and and uh, write things to prove that I'm not a robot. I'm pretty sure we are robots. Uh, actually, we're just organic robots, but. You know, it's all subjective, I guess. How uh, how you look at it is it subjective? What else are we if we're not robots? Maybe it's somatic. I guess might be. Is that the word that I'm searching for? Perhaps it's just in how you want to articulate it. But anyhow, I'm one of those robots that's not going to spam the crap out of you. Uh, I barely ever send out emails. If you are on my email list, you can verify that. You know I'm not lying. You, uh, you may not have even gotten but one email from me ever. But I will email you when I get stand-up science booked in your city. And uh, the number of emails in a given city is how we're determining where stand-up science is going to be booked. So vote with your email. Get on there. I need to be able to reach you guys when I'm there. You can't be checking my website all the time and knowing exactly where I'm going to be and keeping up with me. And uh, so often, I I just get done doing a show in Seattle or something like that. Two days later, someone's like, hey, when are you going to be in Seattle? I was just there two days ago doing everything I could to promote and get people out. And that's always happens constantly. And so the email list will avoid that. I'd very much appreciate it. I will not abuse that privilege and that trust. And thank you so much. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Metro music is provided by Harnessing the Sun.